0: Thank you to all of those that have been listening and giving feedback to the podcast so far. If you haven't already done so, please make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast, so that the next episode comes straight to your feed. And if you have a few moments, please leave us a review on iTunes. Also, if you want to keep up to date of when new episodes are coming out, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tilney Group.
1: Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Anil Kiani, Head of Financial Planning in London, talking with Ben Seagascott, Tilney's Chief Investment Strategist. Today, we will reflect on the latest economic outlook and what that means for investors. Before we begin, here is some important information.
0: Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or a recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carrying varying levels of risk depending on their geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice.
1: So... In light of the recent changes in what's going on in the world, can you give us an update on the global economy and what, looks, what it looks like out there just now? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, we covered on previous podcasts our sort of outlook, so how that's evolved, particularly a lot of it has been around central banks. We started off by saying we expect them to become more dovish, and really, in the last couple of weeks, we've had a lot more facts on the ground, a lot more positive action. So, all of the rhetoric from earlier in the year has translated into, effectively, facts and figures. So, looking, for example, at the European Central Bank, they've come out with significantly downgraded GDP forecasts. They've revised them down. Actually, GDP for the Eurozone this year expected to grow at just 1.1%. 1.7% From 1.7% that was forecast at the end of the last year. And whilst that sounds bad, all of that is backward looking. And in response, the ECB has released a lot more monetary stimulus effectively through mechanisms. They have what's called the TLTRO, um, which is targeted long-term refinancing operations. These are cheap loans they've announced. They're going to redeploy those. Markets had been expecting a little bit of a wait for that. So that means effectively more money in the system. They've also extended their forward guidance. So they've effectively promised the market that they're not going to increase rates all of this year. That was already where markets were pricing in. So it's not new information in and of itself, but it is a big statement uh, when the central bank effectively endorses market pricing. And it has actually been more extreme in the US, the Federal Reserve effectively going, uh, completely reversing some of its earlier expectations. And again, the rhetoric now hardening in the last few weeks. They release every couple of months forecast for where they think interest rates are going to go. And six months ago, they were forecasting three hikes in 2019. As of the last meeting a few weeks ago, they've now revised those down very significantly. No hikes expected for this year and potentially only one uh, for next year. And if you look more importantly at terminal rates, that's where they think interest rates will ultimately go. That's been revised down to just 2.75. Now, the Fed is already at 2.5. So, effectively, the Fed is now saying they pretty much think that is it for this cycle. And that's very significant. Uh, And really, those bold moves is backing up the rhetoric from earlier. So, a lot of those points we expected to come through are manifesting in terms of what the central banks are saying.
1: And so what does that mean for the
0: global consumer? Well, it's certainly been positive for the consumer. Uh, We tend to look through a lot of the noise and look at some of the fundamentals. And consumers and workers are actually having a pretty good time. The low interest rates, obviously that feeds through to elements such as mortgage payments, credit card bills. That's the direct effect on the consumer of interest rates. So low rates is a boon to the consumer. What's also good for the consumer uh, is the low or the high wage growth that we're seeing, particularly in the UK and the US. Uh, These data are released by governments periodically. If you look in the UK, wages are now growing in aggregate at 3.4% year on year. That's the highest it's been since the global financial crisis. And that comes as inflation has actually been dipping. So inflation has fallen to 1.9%. That means real wages, that is wages after the effects of inflation, are much more solid. If you look over the last decade, In the UK, that's not always been the case. The consumer really coming out of a period of relatively subdued wage growth. We had inflation driven by Brexit. That actually meant real wages were falling for a quiet period the last couple of years. But now wage growth is coming through. We're seeing consumers going out and spending in the shops. UK retail sales uh, last month was 4%. That's slightly off January's 4.1%, but still very high. Normally you'd expect a seasonal blip, you have lots of people, they spend in December because of Christmas, they take advantage of the January sales, then sometimes you see a retrenchment in February. That hasn't happened and that to us is a sign that the consumer and worker is pretty positive. That's in the UK. Obviously we look a lot at the US as well, the US as the world's largest economy tends to dictate what happens at a global level and there's similarly very strong numbers Wages, again, growing at 3.4% uh, post-global financial crisis high. But we look through a lot of the headline numbers. I think many listeners will be familiar with the non-farm payroll numbers. It comes out once a month. It's designed as some sort of gauge of the US labour market. But actually, that headline number they talk about is fairly meaningless. It makes sense to look through to the details. You have wage data in there. We also look at there's something called the prime wage indicator so, that is looking at individuals between about 25 and 50, and it follows what's considered a prime wage bracket. And recently, their wage has been growing in excess of 4%. So, very strong levels. Unemployment is low, but also another measure we look at is called underemployment. So, that includes people that are in part time work that potentially want more work. And we see that now at 7.3%. That's below where it was in the last cycle, and it's approaching the lows all the way back in the dot-com bubble, uh, dot-com bubble. So, actually, if you look broadly, consumers and workers are in pretty solid health, wages are strong, and they're buying in the economy, really supporting uh, that part of the market.
1: So, that's a, a, a good look through at the, uh, the consumer position. Does that translate into uh, health of
0: businesses? Ah, Well, therein lies the predicament that the global economy is in, and that gives many people, ourselves included, some pause for thought. It's great that consumers and workers are doing well. The problem is consumers can be fairly fickle, and we need business growth to start coming through. It's businesses that you rely on for wage growth coming through, but also productivity gains. Because the downside of high wages, they're not matched by increasing productivity that normally means uh, businesses investing in capital, building factories, building machines. If you don't have productivity growth, that can lead to inflation. And actually, businesses are a lot more cautious at the moment. And again, it's important to get past some of the backward looking data. We all know what happened in Q4, the broad slowdown, the dip in industrial production. That's all in the past, that's all in the price, even though some forecast or some backward looking measures are still being revised. So to us, I think it's much more important to look at forward looking data. Uh, A key index that we watch is called the Perching Managers Index, PMIs. They survey businesses, the services and manufacturing side, effectively saying, does the future look better or worse for the next 12 months compared to the last 12 months, and as a gauge 50 is your break even. Anything above 50 indicates expansion. Anything less indicates contraction. And typically you get plus or minus about five points. So 55 is pretty strong growth. 45 is pretty bad growth. And we see in the UK and the US, those PMI numbers have been dipping. They're in the low uh, to mid 50s, sort of 53, 54 sort of level, which is okay. It's not great that they're dipping. We'd hope to see those pick up. they're still indicating uh, expansion the problem is really starting to emanate from europe europe is under a lot of pressure there the manufacturing pmi for the whole eurozone has fallen from 49.3 which is a bit contractionary down to 47.6 which is much more contractionary Uh, and the problem there is a lot of that is driven by germany germany actually saw its pmi reading fall three whole points their manufacturing reading the latest look has been 447 So really indicating problems there, that's quite deep into contractionary territory. And it's not just politics, there's concerns over the autos industry, potential for tariffs, but also a slowdown in global demand. So there are some problems out there. I think what I would say, there are still stimulus measures we're waiting for. Fiscal stimulus is still there. A lot of the monetary policy we just talked about and have talked about as a theme previously, they take a while to get through. So, I think it is going to be these, these PMI readings that we're really going to focus on, those forward-looking surveys to try and make a more sustained backdrop.
1: So, we've we've talked about the global economy and how that impacts uh, the consumer and business. Uh, let's let's take a step closer to home and, and look at the domestic economy and UK PLC. Uh, what does that mean for, for where the UK is today?
0: There are two different aspects, I think, to the UK. There's the UK economy and the UK market. Um, The UK market is looking pretty attractive, actually. Uh, If you look in the UK, valuations are fairly attractive. You can get a very comfortable yield of just over 4.5% dividend from UK companies. Many UK companies are global leaders, just happen to be domiciled in the UK, so much more reliant on the global economic backdrop, which is showing signs of relative strength. Against that, domestic UK has been a little bit challenged. We just talked about uh, businesses and the outlook. Business investment, capital expenditure has been subdued um, post the EU referendum. And there we expect some of that pent-up demand potentially to be released. So there are positives. Valuations look attractive. There's also a lot of uncertainty that's holding businesses back. And I think until there's more certainty, we're unlikely to see those businesses storm back anytime soon. But it is important to focus on valuation, and they are attractive companies overall.
1: So from a client perspective and thinking about our clients, why wouldn't a client think about just buying uh, the UK market with a with an attractive dividend of around
0: 4.5%? I think that's a strong argument, and that does lead into why we tend to have uh, a somewhat domestic bias Not only because they're UK companies, but they are globally diversified. You get indirect global exposure. Uh, But against that, I think it is important when running portfolios to be globally diversified. We can all pick any number of idiosyncratic risks that are specific to the market that you're in. So I think it is important to try and limit exposure to that and be globally diversified. Yes, there are great companies in the UK. There are also great companies in Europe, in Japan, in emerging markets, and in the US. And I think it's important to access those as well. You also get diversification through the currency um, as well. So yes, the UK is good. We have exposure there, but I think it is important to be more globally diversified as well, taking advantage of the different return drivers in different parts of the market. And that diversification is really there to give you a better investment
1: ride. So you touched on the uh, the dreaded B word earlier um, putting that into context with a huge array of votes coming and uh, change uh, approaching us, what does that give you in, in terms of uh, views of, uh, of the market and what to do in the context of Brexit? It's something that we
0: monitor on an ongoing basis, and I won't go into all of the different permutations. We release every week our weekly macroeconomic and market review that we go into a bit more detail Ultimately, it all comes through the currency. And as you tend to have any of the softer outlooks getting more prominence, you tend to see sterling strengthening. And as the outlook hardens, you tend to see sterling fall. And the best gauge is to look at sterling, not necessarily against the euro, because obviously the euro is tied up in the same troubles that, that we have here in the UK. It makes a lot more sense to use an external measure. We tend to use the dollar as the global reserve currency. And obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with Brexit. What we can say is, as a very rough rule of thumb, about $1.30 is the breakeven point. And anything significantly above that indicates a softer outlook. Anything below that indicates a harder outlook, with around about five cents either way. Uh, so ultimately, we try and look at what's baked in, what are the expectations, what does that mean for the UK economy? Obviously, a strong pound, tends to push down inflation. Uh, you're uh, You're importing goods and services at a lower rate. So, that tends to be positive for inflation. But also, a stronger pound means all of your overseas investments are worth a little bit less. The exact reverse, when we had the EU referendum, sterling fell. So, the value of overseas assets went up as well. So, we keep an eye on that in terms of diversification, making sure we're not overly exposed to an extreme currency Movement, particularly at the extremes of those
1: fluctuations. You touched on inflation uh, and inflation's around the sort of 2% mark, give or take. Um, Again, the outlook for inflation with central bank policy, what's what's your view on that?
0: It tends to be a somewhat circular discussion. Because inflation is looking relatively subdued, central banks feel relaxed about becoming more dovish, lowering uh, interest rates. And if you see the outlook hardening, then you'd expect that to pick up. It's very difficult as we stand today to build a particularly strong case for inflation. That's the exact reason central banks have become more relaxed. The flip side is inflation can turn very quickly. It was only 12 months ago that we had that shock wage reading in the US that led to a very sharp sell-off and then a very quick recovery. So I think it's potentially dangerous to write inflation off completely. And if anything, we talked earlier about wages coming through, productivity gains not necessarily matching that. So, there is potentially a groundswell of inflation building. And when you have low interest rates, that allows inflation to pick up more quickly. So, it might not be this year, but the the longer you have lower rates, particularly with strong wage growth, the bigger those inflationary pressures will be down the line. So, I don't think inflation has disappeared, unlike a few years ago, when we were toying arguably with deflation in many parts of the world. As you rightly point out, core inflation is a roundabout target, and it doesn't take a huge amount to get much above that. So I think there is the risk that if inflation picks up because of wages later in the year, potentially next year, then central banks might have to react. But if anything, that's a good scenario. Because if um Weak or if low interest rates stimulate economic growth to the point that inflation picks up, then you'd be hiking rates into relative strength. And from an economic and particularly risk asset point of view, that's a positive environment to be in.
1: So, given the uncertainty and all the clouds that are out there, the difficulty of picking through all that noise, how does one go about making clear decisions with that backdrop?
0: It's about focusing on fundamentals, taking a long-term view and being diversified. So we take all of these factors we've talked about, strong economic growth, interest rates looking very low. There we can look at the fundamentals. For example, interest rates are low, but 10-year gilts now yielding at points in the recent past, yielding less than 1%. Fundamentally, that looks unattractive. If you assume inflation is going to be around about 2%, that seems quite fair if you bought a 10-year government bond and held it to maturity, you're effectively guaranteeing to lose money after the effects of inflation. And suggesting there's going to be not more than one interest rate hike over the next 10 years fundamentally seems unattractive. So we look at that on a long-term basis rather than trying to trade short-term fluctuations in the interest rate. We expect that negative correlation to to reassert itself. And everything that we do, we look at long-term earnings expectations We look at where interest rate and fixed income markets are, and we diversify. The important thing about efficient or semi-efficient markets is you get paid a reward for taking on risk. The market doesn't reward you for being reckless, but it does reward you for taking on measured risks. And what we do actually, contrary to popular belief, it's not about trying to predict the future, it's seeing the risks and making sure we're being appropriately rewarded. So that's what we're doing. We're diversifying. We're making sure we're being rewarded and we're taking a long-term fundamental view.
1: Thank you, Ben. That concludes the podcast today. We'll be back again next month with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening.